Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I had, if you ever was a devil, bought that any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hey, hey. Now, sit back and relax, and we will take you on a most interesting voyage through your computer and its disk operating system. Surf's up! See you on the net! When I was in my 20s, you could never have convinced me that as a middle-aged woman, I would feel a sort of vague pity for young people in the 2020s, because they would have no concept whatsoever of what the internet was like in the 90s and early 2000s. Mark, get set. We're riding on the internet. Cyberspace, set free. Hello, virtual reality. Because, like, who would pity someone who did not discover things like Goatsy and Timecube and Something Awful and 4chan back in the days before those sites were just, like, hives of white supremacists and domestic terrorism? And especially finding these bizarre expressions of the human psyche as a young person, when your own perspective on the world and on humanity is just starting to develop. But it's true. I feel really sorry for kids these days because the internet is so boring now. Computer escapes will bathe your mind in a million gigabytes of global gratification. It's fun. Fun. It's fun. Like, it's just been turned into this mass of money-making and politics-controlling algorithms for the most part. I know there's still some really cool communities out there where creativity and expression truly do flourish, where they aren't just, like, subsumed by algos that push capitalist influencers so devoid of souls and so terrified of their own authentic selves that they might as well be AI bots. Yeah, I just called out all the influencers at once. I see through your carefully curated beige facades. Even if they show a picture of themselves, it may not really be who they say they are. I know you're just running from your own shadows by aggressively pretending like everything's fine and you're not just constantly terrified because you feel yourself creeping ever closer to the black finality of the grave. So you decorate your home in a way that'll generate maximum engagement from your followers rather than in a way that actually makes it feel like it's your home. I see you giving your children colorless wood blocks to play with and dressing them in $600 linen smocks because you need them to blend well with the interior decorating scheme you chose to generate maximum likes from your followers. I see you choosing names for your children that'll sound like brands rather than like human beings. I see you contouring your fucking face on TikTok while you talk blandly about some political issue you don't even care about, directing your gaze just to camera left so you give exactly the right air of casual unconcern that the people with bigger accounts give. And I know that when you stop recording, you stare at the wall and you feel like crying because all of this, the internet, the social media age, has turned you into a commodity, a thing to be consumed rather than a real person. You know you're just nothing on the inside, however flawless and like-worthy your outside may appear. 
Oh, sorry, did I get too dark? Was that too real? <laughs> Oops, my bad. Then you must be a robot too. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Prepare for the following erotic interactive transmission. You know, I think the problem with the internet of now, as opposed to the internet like 20 or 30 years ago, well, well, there are a lot of problems with the internet of now. There were a lot of problems with it back then too. But here's, uh, how do I want to say this? I'm really into Terrence McKenna, whose voice is one of those that appears in the intro music to this podcast. He was an ethnobotanist, which is a scientist who studies the cultural relationship between humans and plants. But McKenna was also a gigantic weirdo hippie who didn't really restrain his thinking or the expression of his ideas to uh, the sphere of what was considered acceptable for him. He was an outside-the-box thinker. He died in 2000 just as the internet was barely starting to become a real part of daily life for the majority of people in the West. So he never really saw what the internet would do, but he kind of saw it coming, you know? He seemed to understand long before most other scientists understood and, and long before lay people understood that the internet was more than just a means of communication. It was already shaping up to be its own mind its own self. And it was also, McKenna understood, the one vessel that could truly contain the Jungian model of the human mind. The internet was, by McKenna's reckoning, Jung's collective unconscious made flesh. Or, you know, made as close to flesh as ideas can get. What are you gonna say 10, 20, 30 years from now when your grandkids ask you if you were involved in the internet revolution? Just fair warning here, I am by no means any kind of expert in philosophy. Like, I haven't studied Western philosophy in any serious way. I mean, I didn't go to college. I technically don't have a high school diploma. I'm not an expert, y'all. But I do find Jung very fascinating, and his ideas appear to have a lot of merit, at least as far as I'm capable of understanding them, which, you know, may not be very far. I've done a cursory dive into Jungian philosophy. Again, no expert. But it's a topic I find interesting, so I read about it now and then, and I think about it a lot. You know, for all we understand so much about how the human organism works, and other organisms too, we still know next to nothing about minds. Minds and brains aren't the same, you know? Like, minds certainly appear to be pretty reliant on brains, but they also appear to be not totally reliant on brains in a way that's really hard to define and harder to explain with our current knowledge of biology and other sciences. We don't know what consciousness is. Like, that's not hyperbole. Psychologists and psychiatrists who study the mind don't really know what the fuck a mind is or where it resides in the body. In fact, it might reside outside of the body, but our brains are like an antenna that tunes in the mind or certain aspects of the mind. Nobody knows. That's where the current science stands on the definition of consciousness, the definition of mind. Nobody knows. Do you really know how your email magically appears on your computer screen or how it really works or how it magically send your emails all over the place? Let's www.explain it. But there have been very earnest attempts to understand and organize the mind all throughout recorded history. Carl Jung, who was a Swiss psychiatrist, dedicated his entire career to figuring out what the fuck the human mind is. And I think he made more strides than most people in his field made back in the 19th and early 20th centuries. 
he maybe got us closer to nailing it down than most of his predecessors got us, but I think if he were here today, he'd be the first guy to say that he still really knew nothing at all about the mind. After many, many years of cataloging and analyzing psychiatric sessions with his patients, Jung came up with a working model for the human mind that operates on several distinct parts, and each part serves a different function, and we might present any of those particular parts of the mind to the world at different times or in different contexts in order to like maximize our ability to function, right? One of those parts is called the persona, and it's conceptualized in Jungian philosophy as a mask. Think of the persona aspect of yourself as like the image you deliberately create and project for others to interact with. And like, just because the persona is a deliberate conscious projection, that doesn't mean it's false. That doesn't mean it's not the real you, or at least part of the real you. It's still you, but it's a very carefully chosen and very consciously revealed you. Like, for example, if you're a successful business person, your persona might be charming, affable, but not overly emotional, not easily riled, uh, you're very confident, you put off a vibe that makes others trust you and want to work with you. And there may be all these other aspects to your personality that you don't show to others or only to the people who are closest to you. But that persona is what the rest of the world sees. The tricky thing about personas is that sometimes other people respond so favorably to our personas that we allow the persona to subsume every other aspect of self. The rest of our self-faces become hidden, and when they aren't allowed to express themselves because we're either consciously or unconsciously suppressing them in favor of the persona, we can develop problems, <laughs> pretty serious psychological problems, anxiety, depression, dysfunction in our relationships with others, you name it. Because as with literally everything else in life, moderation is the key, balance is needed, your persona may be part of your true self, but if you're all persona all the time, you're gonna get fucked up somehow, sooner or later. And that's what I think the problem is with today's internet. I think Terence McKenna was right. I think the internet is a mind, distinct and separate from all human minds that interact with it. I think it is absolutely a vessel for the Jungian model of consciousness, or at least I think the internet is a real world model of what consciousness is and what it does, like how it actually operates. And maybe now that we have this model we can tinker with, we'll be able to determine that Jung wasn't right about everything, but he got pretty darn close on some of it. And I think the internet's personality in the 2020s is grossly unbalanced. It is all persona, all mask that's being projected to maximize favorable interactions with others. And the other critical aspects of self are being so neglected that they are becoming pathological. You can see this in the way users of the internet are financially rewarded for blandness, for predictability for lack of surprise, lack of complexity, lack of creativity. What kinds of influencers have the biggest accounts? Those who perform the expected with the fewest possible flaws, right? What kinds of style, both personal and interior, are pushed as being aspirational? Colorless, neutral, expressing, uh, look how alike I am to other things you like versus look how different I am, look how me I am. 
And this spills over into other aspects of culture. Like, how often does a truly original film get made anymore? The vast majority of films being made now are just superhero stories. Like, the same exact fucking utterly predictable bullshit story being told over and over and over and over and over again with only light, ultimately superficial variations. And believe me, the same thing is true in publishing. Like, books are doing the same thing. And yeah, maybe you do like MCU movies. I'm sure they're fun. If you enjoy them, I'm sure that enjoyment is genuine. But also, do you know, really, like, whether you actually prefer these stories, or are you just consuming the stories you're being fed without really questioning who's feeding these narratives to you and why? You know, is it really that you think a colorful rug would look tacky in your home and you genuinely prefer a soothing, neutral palette? Or are you doing what you see everyone else on Instagram doing because everyone else is doing it, so if you don't do it too, that means there must be something wrong with you. See, this is what happens when Persona, the mask, dominates too much. It is just a mask, but when everyone is wearing the same mask, it starts to feel dangerous to take your mask off. It's so much easier to sink into the comforting cradle of social expectations. It's easier, isn't it, to live a life that you don't have to think about too much? That you don't have to examine because your life is average and average is safe, right? Put on your makeup the way other people put theirs on. Dress the way the prettiest people are dressing. Make your home white and sterile. Trend toward the most likes. Trend toward neutrality. Neutrality is safe. Trust what the algorithms tell you. Like what your friends like. Based on your likes, you'll like this too. Trend toward the middle. Let the internet train you in how to be a human. <laughs> okay, fair. I don't know, on any given day, I think I feel like a, an old lady and a baby at the same time, so. Like, always trying to figure out which one you should be feeling at any given moment. This is Theo Grace Quest. She's an artist, an illustrator, and a graphic designer. And she's also the co-organizer of Phoenix Zine Fest, a celebration of independent and outsider publishing in the greater Phoenix, Arizona area. Her most recent publication is Death Zine, an indie magazine about death with the tagline I really love, We Put the Fun in Funeral. Fans of this podcast are already familiar with Theo's work since she created the gorgeous cover art for the pod, and you can see more of the illustrations she did for Future Saint of a New Era on the website, futuresaintpod.com, including the full image of Space Jesus, which is, uh, shall we say, this podcast's mascot. He's truly glorious. Go check him out. He's riding around in a UFO. I love him so much. Theo and I had a great time talking about zine culture, memes these days, and the OG internet, among other things. Check it out, party people. And this year was our first in-person year back, uh, and it just went, it was phenomenal. It was amazing. I'm so excited to hear that zine culture is still around, because this was like a huge part of my, my youth back <laughs> in the day. When I was a teenager, um, so I lived in Seattle, like, during the height of grunge era, which was fucking cool, like, not gonna lie, it was really awesome. Um, and zines were just, like, a huge part of that, a huge part of the musical culture there, the art scene, like, everything, and Seattle had this very distinctive feel to it back then. It really lacks it now, unfortunately, it kind of, it died out, but um, back then, it just, like, there was this, this vibe to being in Seattle in the 90s, and zines were such a huge part of that. Like, you would just, you know, walk around go into some shitty cafe or a record store or whatever, and there would just be a stack of random ass zines there and you could just go through and take whatever ones you wanted. And they were so fun to look through. Like, they're the coolest. 
I love them because it's very, like, it's as outsider art as I think you can get. You know, this is just, like, one person, maybe a couple of people working on any given zine, just publishing whatever interests them. Oh, yeah, that's the dream. Fascinating look into into people's ideas uh, about art, about communication. Um, so I don't know, like, what what made you go nuts for zines? Well, kind of what you just said. I definitely didn't have that like young formative experience with them. My earliest, closest thing to zines was that I was part of my high school journalism class. Um, and that was like a really meaningful, that was like my safe place in, in high school. You know, all of us like weirdos in high school had that one teacher or that one class where we could go hide out yeah. uh, when we were ditching English or, <laughs> yeah. you know, when we were too anxious to go be out at lunch or whatever. And that was journalism for me. Um, so I, I think I knew that I wanted to do something with publishing for a really long time. And then in my 20s, um, honestly, my first memory is I went to like a small press event and it was like eight tables outside uh, on this place called Roosevelt Row, which is like downtown Phoenix. Um, and I had never seen anything like that before. And I was like, cool, there's like eight people here who make their own publications and don't have to get permission from anyone. And they print their comics. So I think that was my first taste. Um, and then I, I met my friend who I mentioned, Carissa Lucille, um, around 2014 or 2015. And we had both started zines around that time. Mine was collaborative which I don't know how I formed the vision for that, but somehow I went from attending a small press, a tiny outdoor event, to starting my own collaborative zine where I encouraged people to submit whatever they wanted to on a certain theme. And then I connected with Carissa, who was publishing a zine called Femme Static that was like uh, sometimes just their pieces, sometimes also submission-based, uh, all stuff about feminism and queer issues. Uh, and then that was eye-opening for me because I was like, oh, holy shit, there are pe other people in Phoenix who are making zines and they're about different stuff than what I'm making zines about. And then I had a slower progression where I was just gradually making more zines and Carissa was like, I love zines. I'm going to open Wasted Ink Zine Distro, which is now this incredible brick and mortar zine distro with an online shop in Phoenix. I had no idea. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite places in Phoenix. And uh, and then Krista was like, let me let me start up Phoenix Zine Fest. Let's make a bigger event for people to gather. So that was definitely a formative relationship for my for my zine making. Um, but the rationale is like what you said, like um, there are so many people who don't get traditional channels of publishing, who don't get featured in magazines. And I feel like those are usually the people that we really, really do need to hear from. Um, whose art I really do want to see, who have something to teach us that we are not being taught in any other way. And since zines are a way for anyone to create whatever the fuck they want to, like that's uh, that that's just why they're so meaningful to me. I can I can read a million different stories in a million different mediums formats um, and feel feel so much closer to all these people like in one sitting. It's really wild. It is yeah. The connection you can make with people like if you care enough to to take it that way, you know? Um, I mean, I think it's easy to sit and flip through a zine and be like, oh, that was kind of interesting or entertaining. But if you really yeah. like look at the curation that goes into it, the themes that like, usually they're, they're themed in some way, each issue is going to have some sort of a theme. Yeah. Um, if you really like dive into it, it is such a unique and strange 
and fun work of art. And what I think is so interesting about the zine format in particular is the way it sort of hangs right at the end of like the print dominating era. Totally. Of, um, of disseminating story and disseminating ideas. And it's like, it's just right before we started doing all this shit online. Yeah. So it's kind of like the last gasp of like outsider printing, oh, yeah. outsider like print printing. It's just, I don't know, it's fascinating to me that it just captures like the mindset of where we are as a species, as as a population, you know, not necessarily the culture in terms of like what big producers are making, like big publishers and, you know, Netflix and all that shit that like creates stories that way. But like it's this last moment where we were animals that disseminated stories by print by physical print yeah and it's just like that's still so relevant though yeah yeah. but in such an interesting snapshot of this like weird little moment in human history oh yeah it's a it's evolving too though because um now we're in this age of surveillance and uh having print information that is not surveilled through the internet is is crucial for for disseminating information so i think zines are a great medium for that what was the first zine you ever made about like what was the theme or you know what slant did you take on it so the collaborative zine that i made was called the paper plane zine and uh the point was to make something that felt really interactive um from like throughout like for the creator and for the reader so each issue had a different theme um i know one of the issues we made all about phoenix things that you can love about phoenix um one issue was just themed fucking awesome and it was like however you want to interpret that whatever you want to make is cool and it was so fun to get submissions i i don't know i just i fell in love with zines through the things that people submitted like meeting creators who who just saw this theme and were like yeah i'm going to make the craziest thing you've ever seen like i'm going to make the wildest piece of art based on this random theme you thought of so like we did fun interactive stuff like you know rip this page out fold it along the seams make a paper plane we did paper dolls um we did mad libs uh, some stuff was just like was poetry and art, but it was just all really a, a really unique angle where creators got to experiment through this publication and then readers got to kind of experiment through the publication. I just wanted it to feel like um, almost like Highlights magazine, but for more for grownups. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I love that. Highlights was really fun because it was very interactive. It was very uh, focused on getting kids to think more about what they were reading, not just to consume stories mindlessly, but to like participate in story making, which was exactly great. Yeah. And it's so it's so cool to do that with adults because like we do the same thing. Obviously, we just sit around and plug some entertainment into our eyeballs and go. And (laughs) (laughs) you got to turn your brain off, you know, but like, yeah, people need to be encouraged to think about topics more and respond with art. You know, anybody can. Yeah. It's just a matter of whether you want to or not, whether you feel motivated. That was something you just reminded me of what I was going to say earlier that I forgot. Another thing that I love about zines is I think that uh, I, I like I make zines that I think I do really polish. And I, I because I'm also like a graphic designer for my day job, sometimes I like have a really clear vision for how perfect I want it to look. And that's that is a valid way to do zines. But I also love that you can create just like a per zine, a personal zine in one day, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It's just this thing that you needed to make today. 
and that's just as valid and just as important. And I think that we don't have a lot of, um, like, especially again, in the age of social media, where like Instagram has evolved into being this like curated grid format. Um, I like making things that don't have to be curated that I can make because I need, I can feel compelled to make things. And I like that that's a valid final product for this, for this art form. No kidding. I feel like that's where the realist and the most important art comes from, too. Like, the art that serves the function that art is supposed to serve in our world comes from that, like, honest, uh, organic response to, like, I need to make this thing. I need to send this idea out into the world without regard for how it's going to fit into a curated presentation or whether my publisher's going to buy it in my case or you know like I just need to do it because it needs to be done yeah um that's where like all all the best and truest art comes from that impulse of of somebody making because they need to say something and that's the only way they think they can think of to say it as accurately as they can you know oh yeah that's that's why they're so fun. I love Long Live the Zine. I'm so glad they're still around because I really thought like for the longest time I was like, well, it's not the 90s anymore, so I guess no more zines. <laughs> so <laughs> in some ways it is still the 90s and in some ways it's even better. Um cuz there are zine fests in like every major city and cities that aren't major. Like there's a whole network of of people coming together to share their their zines. It's it's incredible. Well, I need to get in this clearly because I, I love yeah. it so much, and I just I had no idea that, that there's this whole community of people who are still like into the zine thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess this podcast is kind of like my audio personal zine. It's sort of just like <laughs> shit I want to talk about with interesting people, and then like how I respond to those conversations we have. Oh, that's great. I don't know. <laughs> I guess like I don't know we'll see if it's successful maybe I will not even get any subscribers maybe it'll just get bombed with one star reviews about what a navel gazing asshole I am and that's fair I am <laughs> so <laughs> I mean probably not I doubt that um but even still it's just it comes from that urge to create which like is a thing in itself it's therapeutic yeah. because maybe it doesn't matter what the reviews are it matters that you needed to make it and you had something to say yeah hell yeah I love your graphic design, obviously. Thank you. I mean, you know, as my listeners probably know by now, you are the artist behind um, the logo for this podcast, which as of the time we've recorded this, we haven't hashed all those details out yet and actually... <laughs> yeah. Someday it will be beautiful. <laughs> I already know it's going to be you because I love your art. You have such, uh, such a fascinating, weird, unique style that somehow combines cuteness and eeriness which, you know. Oh, thank you. That's like my goal that I, I've never really vocalized in that way. So thank you for that review. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I love that though. Like that's my jam. That's totally my personal aesthetic is like uh, weird and, you know, like kind of fun and warm and yet unsettling at the same time. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I think that's um, who I strive to be. And then it like leaks out into my art. So <laughs> tell me about the craziest or coolest or like raddest thing that ever happened to you in journalism class in high school. Oh, wow. Oh, man, I haven't thought about this in a while. I like to surprise people with random questions like this. <laughs> I uh, I mean, the first thing... Or like, what's your best story from journalism class? My best story? Uh, well, oh, I, have a, I have lots of memories, lots of stories. Um, I So I had a humor column, and my first name used to be Grace. That's my middle name now. But the column was called Coup de Gras, which means the final blow in, in French. And it was like a funny play on my name because it's spelled like Grace. And I remember I wrote that one of my favorite stories I wrote for my humor column was about the time I fell out of my attic when I was helping my mom get something out of the attic. And I accidentally crushed her um, 
what's it called? Nativity scene, the Christmas nativity scene that we put under the tree. So I crushed that with my body. And in the process, I remember specifically seeing and then relaying in my humor column that I had a bruise on my butt cheek that was in the shape of a rabbit riding a, a razor scooter. You you body slammed the baby Jesus. I felt really hard. I, I, somehow that was my worst injury. And I think I had to make light of it to be okay with the fact that I fully fell out of an attic. <laughs> um, so that was a good one. Yeah, I definitely broke. Um, I forget if I broke Jesus specifically, I at least broke like a wise man or two. Some, there was definitely some fallout. But that class in general was there. We did have a lot of hijinks, too. I remember um, a lot of us in that class were also musicians. So I remember us, we had those old IMAX that had like the colored backs on them. So we had about 15 of those in the room. And GarageBand came preloaded on all of them. So um, we we spent a lot of like afternoons after school producing the paper together. And not everyone always had stuff to do. And I usually didn't want to go home right away. So I think we like recorded a multi-track EP that was like an ode to our journalism teacher who's, who was Mrs. Donner. She was like the best teacher I ever had. So I think we like made a whole EP of songs about her or about each other. And I wish I could hear that now. It's like back on a buried iMac, you know, that was probably replaced in like 2010. <laughs> oh, that's so cool, though. I bet, first of all, I bet that is one of Mrs. Donner's favorite memories from her entire career, because that's awesome. <laughs> I hope so. She was the best. She made me feel safe when I like couldn't find that anywhere else. And I think that's a lot of teachers fill that role for their, their weird students. <laughs> Definitely. Were you ever involved in drama? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I almost didn't have to ask you that question because, like, fellow drama nerds, we can smell each other even across the internet. <laughs> yeah. You're one of us. <laughs> yeah. That's so... Uh, what productions were you in? Oh, my God. So many. So, um, I was fortunate enough to attend a high school that was just doing this experimental thing where they were... Um, they had an entire, like, arts curriculum, like an arts focus. They, we actually called it arts-based school. So it was still, um, uh, it was a public high school, publicly funded, but they were doing this like thing to like try to get charter funding to do this um, completely alternate curriculum where everybody would get their like humanities and social studies lessons through the arts, like via studying different types of arts. Wow. And then like we had to do math and science the old fashioned way, but like all of our other credits were done through art study, which was really fucking awesome. And yeah. it only lasted like the, the years I was in high school and then the funding got cut from it. So, oh, man. Um, but because I was in that thing, I was in like <laughs> so many drama productions. Like it was, it was a grueling schedule. Like we, you know, we're like, okay, now we're doing a unit on the Great Depression. So we're going to do a musical adaptation of The Grapes of Wrath in six weeks. Oh my God. <laughs> like, like it was, it was like this, it was, it was good training in retrospect for a professional life in the arts because it, it taught me to like make stuff on a deadline. Like, even if I didn't feel inspired and didn't feel up to the task, it was like, too bad, you got to get your project done. <laughs> so um, I think uh, probably the, like, so we did um, Lysistrata. I don't know. Do you remember anything about Lysistrata? No. Okay, Lysistrata is an ancient Greek play written by Aristophanes, and it's about how um, in order to get, you know, the two women from two different, like, countries that are at war with each other, Sparta and somebody else, I don't know, um, in order to stop the war... They all go on a sex strike and they just refuse to fuck the, the men. So the men like go nuts and try to like beg and plead and, and get the women to relent. And they're like, no, we will not have sex with you until you stop the war. And in the end, the women win. Oh my God. So that was 
that was one of the standout highlights. And then also the musical version of The Grapes of Wrath was um, my senior project. I directed it. Oh, so. wow. So was there still, so I, full disclosure, I was supposed to read The Grapes of Wrath my junior year. And I definitely did like a fun combo of spark notes and actually reading it. And the main thing I remember is just like one dust and two, there was like a weird, um, weird to me at the time because I was 16, but probably not weird now if I actually read the book, but there was like a, like a nursing, like a breastfeeding scene that, yeah, that was like the, my main takeaway. And now imagining you directing that in high school, like, was that a component? <laughs> it was, it was actually our, our final scene of the show was that scene where Rose of Sharon um, uh, saves the starving man's life by breastfeeding him. But the way we pulled it off was that, you know, she's, she like kneels on the ground next to this man who's like, Ugh, and just like starts to slide her dress off her shoulder. And then like the lights cut and, and it goes back. Oh, wow. So, um, so it worked. I, I, I thought, I felt like it was a very powerful show. I felt like we did a really good job. Um, I'm very proud of the work I did on it. I want to revive it now that I'm an adult and I have like a more nuanced approach to all the thematic issues that are in the Grapes of Wrath. Oh, sure. Um, but yeah. It worked well because we just, we took, like we found a bunch of folk music from that era and then brought it into oh, wow. to uh the play like at certain points where it fit with the story so i had these kind of musical interludes with folk music that like reflected what was going on in the story so yeah we pulled it off but it, it turned out well it was fun and i would completely do it again and also why the hell are we making high school juniors read steinbeck like i love steinbeck <laughs> But I only came to love Steinbeck once I became a professional literary novelist. And I'm like, oh, of course, <laughs> yeah. God, like I should read him all the time and, and you know, study him. <laughs> and then I was like, why do they make kids read this? Like kids can't get this. It's like the Great Gatsby. <laughs> there were making high schoolers read the Great Gatsby. I could not understand what the fuck was happening in the Great Gatsby until I was 30 years old no. going through a divorce. And then I was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I had to read those. I don't know that I really grasped either one. So a lot of respect that almost more respect that you definitely had to that you definitely like read The Grapes of Wrath. And then like bonus respect that you completely adapted it into a stage play and incorporated music of the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a definitely a crash course in how to like put together a functional career in the arts. It was wow. it was useful now that I'm doing this for a living. So yeah, um, I wish that Oh yeah, what a wild like snapshot of uh, that it was only your year essentially that got the full cuz I went to a regular public high school and our plays were fun, but not what you not that was like a intermediate level, you know, not, not what we were doing. <laughs> it was legit and we had like quite a few people who I was in that program with went on to have like professional acting careers. So uh -huh. um yeah, it was the same high school that Anna Ferris graduated from, although she graduated right before that program started. I'm sure she would have been in it if she had, if she had, you know, like, been around when it happened. But, like, the same drama teacher who was coaching her was like, I want to make this whole program where we can actually get kids, like, set up for a career in the arts. Like, we're going to give them, you know, force them to focus on creating under a deadline and under pressure and, like, incorporating theme and, and, um, objectives like other people's objectives into their work because that's what you need if you're if you want to make a living doing art as you know yeah. as a graphic designer like graphic designers know this better than anybody else you're making visual representations of someone else's ideas yeah. right like yeah. <laughs> it's hard and it's high stress and it's a lot of pressure and you have to have some means of coping with that and you have to go into it with the right mindset or it's just it's too much yeah, it's really incredible that you were set up for that at such a young age, because I feel like that's something that I'm still, 
I'm much better at it now than I was when I was younger, but like, it's still kind of a learning curve sometimes when, when somebody, you know, when you just don't have the same vision, but you also need to pay the bills. <laughs> it's hard. It is so hard to find that balance between like what you're good at and what you feel drawn to make as an artist, no matter whether you're doing visual art or music or writing or whatever, you know, and what will sell, like, what can you make money off mm. of? Like, what will the market bear? It is so hard to find that like Venn diagram overlap. Um, it takes a lot of work. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people who don't have any kind of um, coaching in that early on, I think they're a little, uh, I think they're a little disillusioned to learn that the dream does not line up with the reality of working in the art. Oh, sure. You know, like, yeah, you you have to make stuff that'll sell if you want to pay your bills this way. And like, it's totally valid to be like, I don't want to be constrained by that. So I'm just going to keep this as my hobby and have a regular old day job. Like, I get that. I've had many days where I'm like, maybe I chose wrong. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. There's pros and cons to any any of those choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are, what are some of the things that you have found most challenging about graphic design? Um, well, we already pointed to a big one, which is like when you just don't share the vision with your client. Um, I, I definitely, I, I don't feel like I, um, I can be a pushover and that's, that's okay. Sometimes that's actually uh, helpful with my work. Because sometimes if someone isn't, um, is kind, but is like, hey, I want you to design this in an uglier way than what you would want to. I'm like, sure, that's fine. Um, it's only hard when someone is like pushy and wants me to design something uglier than I would want to. That that gets to be a little bit hard. I have to like grin and bear it a little bit more. Uh, but I guess the trick is like more and more I'm able to work with people whose visions do align with with my strengths or my the things I want to challenge myself with. So it's fun. It's been fun working with you, working on illustrations and design for some of your projects, because I feel like we have a lot in common. <laughs> We're aiming for the same goal, which feels really, really good. <laughs> I feel like we are too. And I think I first found you, I think I was on Twitter and I was like, I need a graphic designer to make a logo for my really stupid podcast. And as soon as I saw your work, I was like, yes, this oh, person cool. just gets my aesthetic. Like, this is what I want. <laughs> I couldn't remember how we connected. And I feel like with many people who have come to value in my life. I just can't remember the origin of like our friendship. Um, like I recently had one internet friend remind me that we met in a Facebook group that was dedicated to, that was for fans of both RuPaul's Drag Race and Twin Peaks. What? Um, yeah, that was my, my friend Aaron remembers that that's how we met. But I was like, how, how are you like one of the people I'm closest to? And I don't remember where you came from. <laughs> that is, speaking of Venn diagram overlaps, that's a weird one. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the memes are fire. Like, <laughs> the stuff that people create um, mashing up RuPaul's Drag Race and Twin Peaks, um, just it just, like, feeds my soul. <laughs> I have to say, I really love meme art. And I'm probably the, only, oh, me too. probably the only person in my 40s who will ever say that. Because I think a lot of people my age and older are like, I don't understand what the kids are doing with all this shit. I <laughs> love it. I love the fact that I don't understand half of it. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. this is this weird language that younger people have figured out how to speak to each other visually. But like, older generations can't quite get the hang of. Yeah. Like, it's this, this global secret language. <laughs> I really love it. Oh, yeah. And it's... It's like an art form too. It's like I saw someone recently refer to like really off-putting niche TikToks as um, like neo-surrealism. 
um, or like neo-Dadaism or whatever. And like, and sometimes that feels true because this is really niche humor, but like you want to be like pulled into the fold. Like you want to, you want more of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I want to be that cool. I never will be though, because I'm too fucking old for it. <laughs> I really miss Vine. Speaking of TikTok, I'm so sad that Vine oh, yeah. died because the, the constraint of like a six second limit on it oh, yeah. made people so much more creative with the videos they were making. I feel like Vine was a real, like you got some real mimetic artists on there who like understood how to convey message very briefly um, and to, and how to load story and narrative and, and like theme, you know, everything you would put in, in a large work of art into this little blip of six seconds. I was just like, damn, there were some truly great creators on Vine and like TikTok, it's just not the same. I've never gotten into TikTok because it, it's longer and it just gives people, it, it gives people more freedom, which, which always ends up turning, like as soon as people have that, um, that ability to be expansive with something, it inevitably turns into like a capitalist nightmare where they're like trying yeah. to monetize it and getting promotion or getting uh, sponsors and everything. And like, I'm not going to fault anybody for making a buck however they can in this fucking hell world, you know, get your money where you can. Great. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, do it. But like, I haven't yet to see anything on TikTok that I was like, that is art, you know? That's fair. I think I'm also nostalgic for Vine for the same reason. Sometimes constraints actually help you make better things. I agree. Um, like having having limits, having guidelines. But uh, I don't know. I think I've found some of the weird corners of TikTok that... um that like either a have vine energy or b are doing something so weird and orig original with uh with the format that i it, it's like its own new wonderful thing oh my god please send them to me because i need to find them okay restore my yeah i will <laughs> i'll curate i'll make a little tiktok gallery for you uh like a tour through the weird corners of TikTok. I'd be happy to do that. That'll be great. My my niece um, is twelve, and she is unintentionally a brilliant TikTok creator. She she does not think the things she's making are that great or that funny or that artistic. Um, she's just accidentally making these really hilarious videos of her cat. So my sister, you know, wisely will not allow her yet to like put her face or her image on the internet. Sure. You need to be a little older and a little more mature about handling interpersonal relationships before you expose yourself to all the creepy pedos. So. Yep. Um, Good. But she makes like, she's allowed to make videos that feature things that aren't herself, you know? So she makes all these videos of her cat and the, the narration that goes over the top of them is so like <laughs> Dadaist and weird. And I know she's not trying to do that, which makes it even better. Cause I'm just like, where, her brain is magnificent. Where is this shit coming from? So funny. And I hope she never deletes them. I hope so too. I think my sister's saving them all because my sister just laughs her head off at him and sends them to me. And she's like, she's so mad that I'm laughing at this because she says it's not funny and I'll watch it. I'm like, oh my God, like I'm dying for 30 straight minutes over how funny it is. I was just going to say, it's like the kind of thing that she'll be really embarrassed of for like a solid five years. And then, you know, a couple years later, she'll be like, wow, these were, these were art. These were great. <laughs> Once you adulthood just going to be like wait a minute this yeah. is great <laughs> yeah I was a genius yeah what is what are some of your like name off of your top favorite vines that you miss oh my gosh oh that's hard I know it's super basic but I love stop I could have dropped my croissant <laughs> <laughs> it's also classic yeah the first one that that always comes to me is um I'm in my mom's car oh, yeah. do you remember that one and it just got like remixed in so many different ways. That one was really a standout for me. <laughs> that was good. 
Oh, R.I.P. Vine. It was tragic. It, it died before its time. But maybe that's good. Like, one of the things I really run into a lot with other writers is, um, all writers have this tendency, and I am not immune to this myself, to want to keep, like, a series of books going forever. Like, if it's making money, they just mm -hmm. want to keep milking that cow. I can't blame him. It's hard to make money as a writer. So, like, if you have something oh, yeah. that does okay, yeah, keep doing more of it. But I feel like you have to have an ending to a story. Like, you can't just let it wander off until it just dies sadly with no one caring anymore. <laughs> That's not right. No, I agree. I feel like in both those situations and with Vine, it's like you either die a hero or live to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. You know, you either die being one of the like most iconic video platforms on the internet uh, or you live to see yourself become completely monetized and taken over by advertisers the way everything else has been. Yeah. I, I'm i glad you're 33 because you do remember a little bit of the way the internet was before. Like before social media oh, yeah. became everything. The internet isn't really anything but social media and retail sites anymore. And like back in the day, it was fucking amazing. Like I can't even convey to kids these days, sorry to sound so old, but like, you know, when I talk about my niece and nephew, they're like, oh, the internet, but I'm like, you guys, but like, if you could have been on the internet in 2002, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, it was so, it was like wandering through a forest and around every bend was a new bizarre clearing filled with magical insanity. Like, you never knew what you were going to find. Oh, yeah. Just like following links or like Googling a random phrase and you'd get like a website dedicated to pictures of Brett Spiner, the actor who played Data in Star Trek, like every role where he's ever worn tights. Just an archive of Brett's. Yeah, somebody's GeoCities page. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just like, what the fuck is this? And you scroll through it forever and you're like, this is beautiful. Like, it's insane. It's like every yeah. every passion any any person had back then, they could just blast freely into the ether and they did it all the <laughs> yeah. time. And it was so entertaining to just wander aimlessly and find stuff. And now it's all just algorithms controlling shit on social media to make you spend money. Like, it's just soulless. Bah. Yeah. I do think some of that stuff is, is still out there. Like, I think I've still made... It's harder, but I've made some wild internet discoveries over the years. Um, man, I wish I could remember. There was, there was, like, this one website that I remember being really shocked by, and I just can't remember right now. But, like, I was deeply saddened when... What'd you say? Do people still even make websites if it's not just to, like, sell a product, though? Like, people just make personal websites anymore? I mean, I feel... Maybe I, they do. Yeah, maybe. But I do feel like there's a lot of blogging sites that really filled that void. Yeah. It's... Because it's harder to... You know, you don't really want to pay for, like, a Squarespace website, like... Which, if if this yeah. podcast ever gets really popular, this is a great time to do your, your uh, Squarespace uh, sponsorship plug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess it's just kind of hopped over to blogs that have more, I, I guess the thing I really miss is like on those old GeoCities pages, like people put time into like making the background look cool and like make, like really customizing it because there weren't these user-friendly presets for everything. You had to put so much work and like, learning into making it look unique <laughs> oh yeah you had to learn how to write html buddy <laughs> oh yeah that shit was which out. i think i'm <laughs> i'm like just young enough that i came in like i got really into the internet 
as a teen when MySpace was big and I had like a Zanga blog. So the most coding that I ever had to learn was like the hex code for the color of the background I wanted my MySpace to be. Um, which like, you know, it would have been nice if I was forced to learn more. I could have used that because I'm very much a print designer now. I prefer to design for print and for social media. And I really struggled to touch websites. <laughs> so I landed at just the right and just the wrong time, I guess. <laughs> Sounds like it. Is that um, that image back behind you? Is that your work with that cow? Yeah, that's a painting I've been working on. It's going to be part of... So I originally did it as a digital illustration that's on my Instagram right now. But I'm going to do three large paintings of like roadside signs that have quotes that are interest meaningful to me. So this is the first of three. Okay. Um, when you get done with them, please let me know because I am also an art collector and I buy originals. Oh my God. Okay. I know I'm all perked up now. Like, eh. <laughs> Earlier, well, I released one of my other guests on this podcast is an artist who I, I've uh, added quite a few of her pieces to my collection. So it was really fun to get to talk to her. So yeah. Oh, that's cool. I, I really struggle to, um, uh, I, I guess this goes back to like making for the sake of making. Um, I usually don't have a grand vision for where I'm taking things. So one of my best friends is also an artist. She's a photographer and she lived in LA and worked in LA for a while and has more experience with um, like commercial art in a different way than I do. Like graphic design to working with a client is different from like how she was trying to like do photography from her own brain for a living. Um, I just always really admired it. Um, so we were talking about these pieces and she was like, oh, so where do you, or who are you going to sell them to? What's the grand vision? Like, you know, where are these going to land? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I am not there yet. I wish that I could think about these things because it would be good for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, I, I suppose I do think about that stuff when, with most of the stuff I write because it is such a necessity and like, keeping my freaking bills paid, you know. But I think after have, having done it for so long because I've been writing professionally for almost a decade now and then I was doing it a lot before then with the aim of getting to where I could do it professionally, you know, like putting in the work on the side. Um I think it's just become second nature to me now to sort of think about that, but I do think there was a point in my sort of development as a writer where I did kind of think about like okay, who is the end audience for this like how do I reach that that particular type of person specifically I do think it's useful to do if, if you're gonna do it financially. Oh, yeah. but it's also like whenever you're pulling together all the skills to do any creative pursuit at a professional level um, it's so much to juggle initially like like it's not just enough that you can be visually great and have great technical skill you know as an artist you also have to figure out how to market this shit like <laughs> It's too much. It takes a while before you can coordinate all those skills and like do them without thinking about it. But um, speaking of personal websites, I did think of one that I really love that's been around forever. Like I think for 20 years. Have you ever seen lilex.com? No, I'll go there right now. Oh yeah, L-I-L-E-K-S.com. This is made by a man named James Lilex, who uh, I don't know if he still is, but he at least was a journalist for like some Midwest newspaper forever. And um this, he calls his website the enormity. It is an enormity. It's incredible. It's one of the most amazing pieces of internet art I've ever seen in my life. It's just a collection of shit that James Lilex thinks is interesting and beautiful. That's so great. And it's all, yeah, it's all arranged into these little categories of like, 
um, matchbooks, like, from, like, the 1940s and 1950s, like, matchbook art, and, like, uh, Wisconsin, uh, travel guides from the 1960s. Like, it's just stuff that he thinks is interesting visually. Yeah. And he pulls it all together in these galleries, and there are, like, hundreds of galleries, because he just works on this all the time and has been doing this for decades. Oh, wow. And it's just fascinating. I mean, you can spend days probably just going through this whole website just following one link to another and never reach the end of it it is so amazing i've never seen this before but this is all stuff i'm really interested in like seeing a category called ephemeratorium oh yeah is very interesting to me <laughs> yeah he's he's totally like that's why that painting back there caught my eye so much because it is a roadside sign with a very like yeah 50s, 60s kind of vibe to it and i'm like that looks like something that would be on lilacs. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I can't wait to dig into this more, like, tonight. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'll love it. You'll totally love it. He did, like, he got a book deal a while ago for, um for I think it was the Gallery of Regrettable Food, which was, like, his most popular one, which was, like, disgusting recipes from mid-century cookbooks. <laughs> it's, it's great. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll love, like, all the advertising art in there, like, retro advertising art um yeah, like weird like sexy comics from the 1930s <laughs> so fun. oh my god I can't wait <laughs> yeah well enjoy you're gonna have a great time with lilacs <laughs> yeah thank you my my best example was a little less cool but uh I was really into the way that the space jam the official warner brothers space jam website looked right up until about a year ago I think they finally updated it and modernized it. Oh, boo. But up until a year or two ago, it was like a cluttered space background with really tiny icons you could click on and like Times New Roman red text that was really hard to read. It was just like a work of art and like a time capsule that lasted so long somehow. Wow. That is fascinating. There, It's... It's sad to be my age and to have such clear memories of the way the internet was and to see it vanishing so quickly because it really was special. It was, yeah, you know, it was so new when it just got to the point where it was in like everyone's homes. And, you know, I had spent my teenage years without internet, you know, wandering Seattle looking for zines to read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then suddenly in like 1999, we had the internet you know, at home, like right as I became officially an adult. And it was just this, yeah. this new world that just like ripped itself open in front of me. And I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. It was so great and fascinating and just endlessly entertaining. And it's just so algorithmic and controlled now. And it's just not the same. It, it really is. But I also think that there are those pockets of authenticity still. Because like, I am definitely a chronically online person for better or for worse, like I see all of these horrible things. And I agree with you about like how algorithmic it is and like how monetized it is. But I, I think that like the humanity in it is still there. We, we're finding each other on these yeah. channels that are algorithmic, you know, and we have to scroll through a bunch of ads before we can connect with a human being. That part sucks. But um, the people. But the connection is there. Yeah, yeah. the people are still there. The people who want to connect and share their special interests. Um, we just have to like interact with the, the, you know, the way we consume it a little bit differently. It's less organic now. It is less organic. But yeah, you're right. The, the humanity is still there. The connection is still there. The personalities are still there. And that's like, you know, for better or worse, like this is how we connect to each other now is through these stupid mm -hmm. algorithmic, you know, shopping devices. Essentially, it, it's like either you 
engage with that in whatever way you're comfortable so that you can interact with a broader sphere of people than just like who's immediately in your home and your family or you become a hermit like yeah it's true at this point so I do try to stay engaged even though I really hate social media I hate it like I'm on Twitter all the time but I fucking hate Twitter like it's just yeah same (laughs) awful and like Elon Musk is gonna buy it now and like literally an evil wizard and Oh, yeah, I feel like he just bought it because he, like, uh, wants people to like his tweets, and now he can probably force them to. internet of today is all Jungian persona, then the internet of the late 90s and early 2000s was a 100% Jungian shadow. The shadow is the aspect of the mind that's repressed and intentionally unexamined. It's all the shit inside our heads that we're afraid of, you know? Past traumas and their fallouts, taboo thoughts, things your culture looks down on, which like usually for no good reason ends up being sexual stuff. Like everybody freaks out about being horny because the religion tells them they're going to hell if you ever get horny, whatever. My mom's never been happy with me being furry. Now she's more comfortable than she was. At least, at least she hides it better. 
When we all first got in-home access to the internet, like when the internet shifted from rarely accessible novelty to like a standard utility, the very first thing we all did was just empty the contents of our shadows straight onto the web. Oh my God, it was a horrible, disgusting wonderland back then. Every dark thought anyone had ever had, every bizarre fantasy, every weirdo taboo came pouring out in this fire hose of insane data for everyone to see. It was incredible. Claims to be a fairy and um, I don't fully comprehend or understand what he means when he says he's a furry. Every day I would log onto the net and just like think up some random phrase to Google and then just start following links, just ping-ponging from one bonkers website to another. UFO conspiracies, uh, photo galleries from LARPers meetups. Oh, there was this woman who was cataloging the sexual relationship she had with a Bigfoot who would visit her in her dreams. Oh, I remember there was a, a website that was entirely written from the perspective of this one lady's three cats and it went on like for years. She kept this up for years. There was this guy I was fascinated by, David Gonterman. He had created this whole comic book universe of cartoon characters with their own intricate backstories in this like sci-fi plot that was forever unfolding. And he had this self-insertion character who had a mullet with like this long rat tail. And he'd made this whole universe for himself where this character that represented him was fucking this hot bunny woman android who had wheels instead of feet. So she just like rolled around instead of walking. I loved that shit. I would periodically check up on David Gonterman's weird comics like every few months or whatever and get caught up on the story and just shake my head in absolute wonder. You know, this guy was going to work every day, whatever his job was, like a teller at the bank, I don't know, however he earned his living. And then he'd come home and just draw out these extravagant, sexy adventures for himself. And also this repressed shadow side of himself had a mullet with a rat tail because he thought that was the coolest way a person could look. It was so fucking good. And nobody does that anymore. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who do this stuff on the internet still, no doubt. But the point I'm trying to convey is, now the vast majority of people use the internet in order to seem as normal as possible. And back then it was the opposite. Everywhere you turned, it was this bewildering forest of people's inmost fantasies, like their previously unexamined fears and traumas just exploding out of them into this new consciousness, into this thing that was rapidly taking over our lives. It was dudes with mullets, fucking wheel-footed bunny women everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Spooge art is the stuff that's not like cheesecake pinup, but very, very explicit and adult. Back then, I was astonished and delighted by the furry subculture. Nowadays, furries are so mainstream, like who cares, right? Back then, I had not even conceived of a reality in which adults were so attached to a cartoon, to anthropomorphic cartoon animals, that they structured their entire lives around these secret identities, these shadow selves, which were as shadow as you could get, right? These people conceived of themselves, at least in some respect, as non-human as bestial. They were shapeshifters inside their own minds. And while I didn't feel any personal pull towards furry culture, like I was never a furry myself, I was fascinated by the people themselves who were in this subculture. I lurked on furry sites like all the time. I was just entranced by how weird these people's lives were, their concepts of self. And like they weren't hurting anybody, you know? There was no reason to be disgusted by them. They were just weird and I loved it. 
Of course, obviously, there was frequently some sexual dimension to the furry fandom for almost everyone who was involved with it. Most of the art was just, you know, pictures of humanoids with fox heads fucking humanoids with cat heads or whatever. Part of the furry, I really think, is sexual attraction. And, and anyone who says that furry is not a sexual-based fandom is really kind of fooling themselves. But I could just stare at this shit endlessly like it was this new box of mystical wonders, a new peek into the whirling fractal of the human subconscious every time I visited VCL. Like, oh, what do we got today? Ah, a tiger man with two human dicks and a dragon is sticking a tiny person up his ass like a butt plug. Cool. His name is uh, Jurassic. He's got a, a lot of fursuits, so we had a lot of fun trying him on. And while I was in it, uh, my friend got a little bit, a little bit yiffy and got a little bit uh, up and I got aroused, but I didn't climax or anything. He did though, I'm sure, because he was a little bit more boisterous in his movements against me. This was back in the early 2000s. I don't remember exactly what year, but it was sometime before 03. I'd made friends with another aspiring novelist who was working on one of his first books. He lived in New York. His name was Jason. He was also fascinated by the furry subculture and its weird dominance over the internet. Like seriously, back then, for a period of like five years, you couldn't swing an anthropomorphic cat without hitting a furry. The internet practically was furries for just like, you know, a few years back then. Jason was working on a novel that was set at a furry convention. Like the main character of this novel was a journalist who was assigned to report on a furry con and then a bunch of wild Hunter S. Thompson shit ensued. And I remember one day we were talking over AIM, which for you kids out there was like texting, but most people didn't have personal cell phones yet. So you had to do it on the internet. And Jason said, you know what I really need to do in order to write this book the right way is attend a furry con. I go to conventions because, mainly because I like the fursuit. And it's a great place to be able to go out and fursuit. Midwest Fur Fest was my first convention and I wasn't expecting it to be any different from anything else. Now MTV had just very recently done a documentary about the furry fandom and naturally it leaned pretty heavily on the sexual aspect of furry fandom. Which is understandable because, you know, anyone who's ever spent like 10 seconds on a furry site will tell you it's like 90% sexual. But the furry community itself was in a fucking uproar over this documentary. They were so mad. They felt like the documentary had misrepresented them and had painted them as a bunch of irredeemable pervs, which fair enough. Like I did watch the documentary and I don't remember it being like judgmental about the fandom. I remember it just presenting the whole furry thing the way I had seen it myself. Like here are a bunch of people who feel a strong affinity for one type of animal or another. And also sometimes they make porn about it. Like, yeah, that's the furry fandom, right? But the furries were mad as hell and they were on high alert about their safe spaces being infiltrated by gawkers who might try to misrepresent them for the lulls, as we used to say. And that's fair, I, I get the suspicion. But because the whole community was so closed off to outsiders at that time, Jason said, you know, if I'm going to attend a furry con, I'm going to have to basically infiltrate it. Like, I'm going to have to convince them that I am one of them. And I said, holy shit, Infiltrating a furry con sounds like the best idea anyone has ever had. I'm in. I think the cons are a place where you can release, let yourself go and your furry side come out, you know? I mean, not everybody's dressed in fur. Some people just like the art. Some people are just here, you know, to look around. It's a lot of fun. We did some research and found a con we thought we could get to on our very limited budgets. 
It was in Anaheim, California. Jason flew into Seattle, I picked him up, we went to the Greyhound station and bought two tickets to Anaheim. On the very long bus ride down, we formulated our plan. We created fursonas for ourselves. That's what furries call their, their inner animal, if you will, their fursona, and constructed these elaborate backstories. Jason and I had both been lurkers on various furry websites for a long time, so we were confident that we could pull this off without triggering anyone's suspicions and getting kicked out of the con. Like, we knew we'd be able to talk the talk convincingly and set actual furries' minds at ease that we weren't, like, trying to fuck with them in any way, you know? Because Jason's novel wasn't meant to be some kind of stinging rebuke of the furry community. It was just a fun, funny idea about a gonzo journalist, but, like, set in our time and place, our reality, which was inexplicably and very suddenly infested by grown-ass adults who wanted to be six-foot mousemen in diapers. You know, write what you know. When I, when I come to conventions, I'm here really to meet people and to be social and to hug and scratch and bounce around and have a good time. Well, by the time we reached Anaheim, we had a pretty solid plan. We were going to split up and attend different panels and talks and stuff and spend time exploring different parts of the con on our own. We were both gonna take like copious notes. And then at the end of each day, we would meet back up in our hotel room and go over all the notes we'd taken. So Jason could like incorporate a maximum amount of world building into his novel. So that's exactly what we did. We got checked in without incident. We specified our personas on our con badges. Mine was Libs the Deer Girl. I don't know why I went with a deer. If there was some reason, I don't recall it now. And then we went over the program and like divided up the panels between us and we went our separate ways. Somehow I ended up with the panel on how to build a fursuit, which if you don't know is like a mascot costume. It's a costume that represents the wearer's fursona. Fursuits typically hide the human form entirely. I mean, aside from, you know, the general bipedal uses hands, basic humanoid blueprint. But like the heads of these costumes completely cover your face. You don't see any human expression whatsoever while someone's wearing a fursuit. I walked into the room for this panel and like 30 lonely, horny men just turned and looked at me. I was the only woman in the room and I was like, oh shit. Terms, a fursuit is a furry costume. It's the, a way that uh, furries can uh, get in touch with their furry characters and their alter egos. Well, I went through this panel and took notes and it was honestly like really interesting. I'm a big theater nerd and I found the costuming aspect, like the technical ways these costumes are constructed to be genuinely fascinating. And it has to be said, there were some absolutely mind-blowing fursuits at this con. Just real works of art and craftsmanship and technological achievement. Like I remember this one that was an African wild dog and like the feet were constructed in such a way that it looked like the person who was wearing the costume was walking up on the toes of the paw, like the way a dog walks, not flat-footed like a human foot. It was amazing, beautiful costume that must have taken hundreds of hours to make. So I did think it was really, really cool to learn about construction methods and best practices and all that. At some point, the guy who was teaching this class pulled out the head of a costume like from underneath the table and he set it up on top of the table. It was a husky's head, I remember that. And he said, who wants to wear the head? I did not raise my hand, but all the dudes in that room pointed at me and said, her, put the head on her. Again only woman in the room. And I was like, oh, oh fuck. I mean, I'll admit that, that some that some fursuits can be sexually arousing, and wearing a fursuit can be sexually arousing in a proper situation. Like emerging from a cocoon or something, I guess, I don't know. The typical way that most people would understand that you do it is, because you have an actual fursuit, you'd wonder, how do you have sex in a fursuit? 
most people would go about by putting strategically placed holes in various places on the suit. These can involve just about anything you can think of. But you know, I was there to get information for Jason's book, and I thought what it feels like to wear a fursuit, or at least the head of a fursuit, might be useful for my friend, so I said, sure, I'll try it. The guy, the, the costumer, had me come up to the front of the room. He asked me if I'd ever worn a fursuit before, and of course I said no. He kind of put me on the spot. He asked me like, well, what brought you to this class? Are you curious about wearing a fursuit? And I kind of thought on my feet and I said something like, oh, I have other costuming experience from doing theater, you know? And I was just like curious about how it might translate into the fandom. Like maybe I could learn how to make fursuits for other people someday and like, you know, make a little money if I got good enough at it. Well, all the dudes in the room were like, you have to wear a fursuit to really understand it. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Let's go. The guy who was teaching the class lowered this gigantic husky head over my own. And it was like the rest of the men in that room had been waiting for a signal that had now been given. Like now they had the green light to touch me. I know the teacher was making some point about how you have to keep heads lightweight or whatever, but all I really recall was that the whole pack of these dudes got up from their chairs and came up to me and started like scratching the nose on the mask. And I could see out, like the eyes were made of this sort of one-way mesh material. So I could see fairly clearly, but you couldn't see into the, in, the inside of the mask very well, right? So I was sitting there saying, oh wow, yeah, this is so cool. Yeah, it's really lightweight, that's surprising or you know, whatever. And meanwhile, I had this rictus of horror on my actual face as I stared out at all these men's hands that were like right up in my personal space touching the thing that was perilously close to my actual body and they were all saying scritches. Jason was thrilled with the information I'd gathered in that panel. He was so stoked about it. I was really glad he found it useful. We actually had a really good time at that convention. It was fun to immerse ourselves in this world that was like familiar to us and yet very much unfamiliar. You know, we'd both just been lurkers. We weren't part of the fandom ourselves, but to see it come to life around us and to see it take on all this dimension and this humanity, that was fun. We met some artists in real life who were like fandom famous who we'd only known through their art before. We watched animal movies in big groups with other people. We went to like fiction readings and it was just fun. Furries are cool people. I know that might be a shocking statement to some folks out there because for some reason furries are still pretty hated on even after all these decades of the internet just being a normal part of everyone's life and therefore furries have just been a normal part of everyone's life for what seems like eons now. And obviously I don't mean the furries who are into like Hitler or child sex abuse. Yeah, there are furries who are into Hitler and even worse things. But you know, there are people who are leaders of churches and politicians who are into Hitler and child sex abuse too. There's no subgenre of humanity that has a lock on goodness or badness. You find good people and atrocious people everywhere. So yeah, I've got mad respect for furries. I think they're people who are being far more authentic than anyone who's just placidly and obediently doing whatever the money-making algorithms on social media tell them to do. You know, I think it's much more admirable to have examined your shadow side and to have determined that you would prefer to consciously and deliberately project the persona of a tiger man with two dicks out into the world versus living an unexamined life where you never even glance at your own shadow from the corner of your eye and you just keep projecting the persona the internet tells you is acceptable to project. Yifon furries, I salute you. Live your best lives. Live authentic lives, even if they are not the kind of lives that trend toward the safe, beige, neutral middle. Because in the end, that's why we're all here. To live. And I think it's wise for all of us to ask ourselves whether what we're doing now really feels like living, or if it just feels like wearing a mask. 
That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you take a minute to rate and review since that scritches the algorithm's fursuit and helps me find more curious weirdos like yourself. Special shout out to Christopher Sheenfeld who tweeted about the show and has been pimping it on TikTok. Christopher, you are a god among men. Thank you so much. Go check out my guest, Theo Quest, and definitely hire her if you're looking for quality illustration or graphic design work. She is obviously amazing. You can find her on Instagram at theoquest.jpg. That's theoquest.jpg. And don't forget to visit lilex.com to experience the enormity for yourself. That's L-I-L-E-K-S.com. If you want more from inside my head, read my book, The Prophet's Wife, because it's the best thing I've ever made, and I really want it to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collage components came from the following YouTube channels. Everything is terrible and the Dante Oxalis. Our musical interlude was The Internet by Taco Cat, licensed under the Creative Commons. Additional music included Saturated Drops and Set It Up by Shane Ivers. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more info about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. Thank you.